Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, customer experience, a lot of companies want to use customer experience or CX and want to do it well or want to figure out what it means to think about the experience of their customers. But are they really embracing the essence? You know, what is customer experience really about? Businesses often think about it as customers being happy in terms of customer satisfaction. But let's think about satisfaction as a metric for a second. You know, when the last time you were satisfied by a good meal, whether it was having a nice pizza or some spaghetti or even a good salad, what went into you feeling satisfied? You know, was it the taste or the temperature of the food, the ingredients, the ambiance if you were at a restaurant? You know, was it the satisfaction of cooking the meal yourself or that you get to order at your favorite place? You'd miss all of these details if you simply focus on whether or not or how satisfied you are with a meal. So the point really is that customer experience is about much more than satisfaction. You know, to be a company that really embraces CX, again, customer experience, is to embrace cultural change. And we all know that change can be difficult, and it can be challenging to get people on board with it. I think we just discovered a new design challenge, which is designing the salad experience. I've not seen people talk about that much, but I think we're onto something there. I'm, I'm for it. I think, I think we all should be for it. Nothing better than a good salad. <laughs> and as companies are, are trying to think about this change, they're, they're wrestling with this idea of what it means to be customer-centric without actually coming to terms with what it means to live customer-centricity. And our guest today is here to help us think about that difference between wanting to be customer-centric but actually living customer-centricity and what it takes to accomplish that, how to overcome this gap. Our guest is Stacy Sherman, and she has been living customer experience since she first had to pick it up and learn it on the job when it was just as many people have had that experience of, we're now doing customer experience, you're in charge of it, figure it out. And she's been figuring it out and doing it for quite some time now. From her full-time work as Director of Customer Experience and Employee Engagement at the Schindler Elevator Company, I guess you could say her, you know, her career there was really on the rise. Elevate, it's elevator humor. Forget it. To her other full-time work as a consultant at Doing CX Right. So two full-time jobs, she's pretty busy and doing the work of bringing customer experience to people who need it. Much of her days are spent trying to make customer experience and centricity a part of organizational life, you know, really embracing that challenge and the change of customer experience in organizations. In our conversation, we talk about the conception and birth of customer experience, its coming of age and the growing pains associated with early adolescence and who doesn't remember early adolescence and the growing pains associated with that? Mm -hmm. Am I right? Amen. How it is, how customer experience is finding an identity in its adulthood and where it may be going as it ages, as it you know, continues on in its golden years and what that means for what it becomes you know, through its life journey. We also talk about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in customer experience, both as a profession for customer experience professionals but also the practice of doing customer experience and what it means to embrace DE&I as a key feature and not just some ancillary consideration. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, we talk about what we can learn from the pop group band, The Go-Go's, about customer experience. Hmm. 
There's a lot, there's a lot of Go-Go's conversation in this podcast. So if you're a Go-Go's fan, you're in luck. So it was a lot of fun to catch up with Stacey Sherman to learn from her experience, talk about 1980s and 90s uh, pop music and understand customer experience. So hope you enjoy. Yeah, the, the memories, what makes for a good memory uh, or makes for an experience is the memories we form around them. So if that's the measure, this week is going to be quite the experience and people are experiencing pretty differently, which is remarkable. It really is. Um, it is definitely an experience week. So, <laughs> yes. That's one way of putting it. I mean, you're, you're pretty close to Pennsylvania. You're going to drive over and help count? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, um, in fact, I stay away from the news like pretty much all day. Um, I just can't, I can't, I can't, but uh, yeah, I'll know, I'll get nothing done. So it's, it's so true. I think on election night, I watched a documentary about the Go-Go's. I did too. That was fascinating. You watched the same documentary? Yeah. No kidding. What did you think about it? It brought back uh, a lot of memories. Um, and, um, it was, I didn't realize how, um, how much they were fighting for, you know, their white, their rights and what they stood for at that time. It was, I didn't realize they were trendsetters in a way. I didn't realize how much. Right. You know, and I grew up during that whole moment too. And. Part of me watching that, you know, you had the whole punk thing happening, which I thought was pretty interesting. But at the same time, their success didn't come from punk, but their identity did. And they had to change who they were, but try to keep the same identity, but the product changed. And, you know, that what I was wondering about the one band member who was like, I'm not selling out. And, and she stuck to her guns. And, you know, as a result, probably lost a lot of money <laughs> in the process by remaining true to a vision versus changing that vision and going along with the more pop format of the music. I know. I don't I know. know if that's a bad story or a good story for her. I, I'm still trying to wrestle with that. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it was a great story. The relationships, the dynamics, I enjoyed it a lot. It was, uh, they were experience makers themselves at that time. But, yeah, but I think the one of the big takeaways from that, documentary I didn't know was they were the first women, all female band who played their own instruments, wrote their own songs and got hit, got number one in the charts. Yeah. But they had to fight their way. They had to fight their way. I might've been men, some men back then might debate it, but it looked like they, they didn't have it. They didn't have, they had to work extra hard. Yeah, they didn't. They I don't know, but it looked like it. Well, it, it definitely felt that way. But you know, it, it was it was weird in that in this punk movement, which was a very nascent thing, you could be who you wanted to be and what you wanted to be. But yeah. then, uh, and that's where they found themselves. They, they started playing instruments without learning how to play instruments, and they just kind of went with it. But then, when they actually got to the point of maturing as artists into this industry, they had to create a kind. They had to make hits. 
And in a weird way, here's a transition. This is why I get paid the big bucks. It reminds me a little bit of customer experience because it starts started out as this very nascent thing where people were making of it what they wanted to. And now as it evolves, matures, develops, it's becoming in some ways more standardized, more reg- regimented. You got to produce the hits. You know, I wonder if it's becoming like about, like they had to become about something else, successful, but about something else. If, you know, how, what, what, what lessons can we draw from the GoGo's documentary, which is not how I expected this conversation to start. <laughs> but what lessons can we draw yes. from that to, you know, customer experience? Yeah. Well, but well, one more thing about what you said that, um, that yes, they represented what they wanted to be at, at any cost, their right to be who they wanted to be. And I just wonder today, would it be easier for them? Because I think we embrace more the society of, of everything matters, you matter, I matter, black matters, white matters, everybody matters. So I think that they, again, had to work extra hard then as if it, if it was today, would it be the same level of effort, which is what we measure in CX? Right. Um, it'd be very interesting. Yeah, I would, I would imagine the answer would be, you know, they would have an easier time, but that's, it's almost like if you've ever gone cross-country skiing or snowshoeing, the person who's breaking the trail always works the hardest. And the person who's coming behind has an easier time because they can follow in those tracks. And so this, I, I saw a recent documentary about Motown and I'm from Detroit and it was very similar, right? I mean, they really had to fight and, and scrape. And the other thing I liked about the documentary about the Go-Go's they had female manager. And so it really did feel like this, you know, me too before me too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it was just standing up for what they believed punk at the time and that style and that way of living and whether it was accepted or not, they, they were passionate in what they believed. And again, I think they were trendsetters for, for that time. And today, maybe because it is easier to be who you want to be, maybe, <laughs> I don't right. know about that. We're getting, we're getting a little closer that um, maybe to differentiate yourself when everybody is trying to become more equal, maybe to differentiate is harder. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, how do you, I, I was looking at your website, which we've discussed before. I love because it looks so good and looking at the content you create and it's, you know, especially in CX as a CX leader. I mean, I know you work in a company as director of experience, customer experience and employee engagement. I want to talk about that, but you're also out there as a thought leader. And how do you, how do you maintain differentiation and uniqueness in a space that's so crowded? And I often wonder about that too. How do you accomplish that? Well, first and foremost, I really believe that when you do what you love and love what you do, it doesn't feel like work. Right. So, um, I, so I've been, I'm very fortunate to be doing what I love in my day job in a corporate world and bring it to my side passion projects. It's, it's relatively the same. The methodologies don't change 
the practice doesn't change. The best practices don't change. It's really how you apply it and helping people build those skills and doing CX right, not just talking about it. That's that's the key. Um, but I don't know if I answered your your question. Is it balancing or is it? If I think leadership it's a, comes from doing what you love. Well, I, I think that so many people, you know, I'm a sociologist not trained as a CX professional, even though my dissertation research was in customer service. The idea, uh, that's one of the things that strike me about people I meet in this space and even an employee experience and patient experience and all the, you know, all the experience design areas that are emerging, people are in it and engaged in it because they believe in it. And I wonder as people, as CX becomes, I, I know we talked about before when we, you know, we were chatting, you know, months ago, it feels like, keep, you know, so many jobs are posting for CX professionals, hmm. but without knowing what CX really is at its heart. Oh, you are so right. Everybody is hooking on to this, the CX name and calling themselves experts um, or saying that they're a customer-centric company when they're really checking a box. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's very sensitive. I mean, we cannot – there's definitely a difference between real customer-centric companies, professionals, customer service – that name's been around forever. Right. Um, but that's not customer experience. It's a part of it. And so I want to get to that, but I'm kind of curious how you ended up in this role because, I mean, I know the story, but it's still an interesting story. I want to kind of go back over it because you, like so many people, just ended up in it, especially like in this, like I would say, first generation customer experience professionals. They just kind of like there. You know, and they had to, people are like, now you're doing this, or you were told now you're doing this. And you're like, doing what? <laughs> what is this? What's the this? <laughs> and then you got to figure it out. There's a this? I didn't know there was a this. Now there's a this. Um, but how did you get into it in the first place? What was that experience? Yeah, it was definitely an experience. And boy, has it taught me. So, um, so I had, um, I was working at Verizon at the time in a digital e-commerce, uh, commerce marketing and um, optimization of our website. And so my boss had thrown me the ball, literally like this invisible ball and said, you now own CX and, and voice of customer and all the VOC and all these acronyms. And so I was like, what is that? And he said, I don't know, go figure it out. <laughs> So I did, I figured it out and boy, did I figure it out. Um, but I want to say something about this point besides falling into this work line of work. That is when you have a really tough boss or kids who have a tough teacher, um, it's so easy to want to run away or get out. <laughs> um, because here's an example. I didn't have somebody who could really help me. Right. And, um, and, and even when I asked, you know, I'm stuck on something and the answer, go figure it out. And so guess what? Now, anything that comes my way, I, I figure it out. Um, 
So when I remember my kids wanted to change teachers and I'm like, no, you know what? You're going to have tough bosses someday. Right. No, let's not swap you out for an easy teacher. This is, this teacher is going to teach you more than you realize. And that's what some of these bosses have done for me. I had a similar experience. This was like, you know, parenting out of the book a little bit, I guess. Um, my, my oldest daughter was playing soccer and she really was not cut out for it. You know, it was like peewee soccer, kid soccer, whatever. And she was the kid who would like stand out there and look at butterflies and pick like blades of grass and not like actually be engaged. And she said to me like mid season, I want to quit. I'm like, all right, that's fine. You can quit. You just have to go tell your coach that you're no longer going to play and, um, and you know, turn in your uniform that, that she did not want to do. I said, well, your choice is either you keep going and you're engaged because this is a team, they're relying on you, or you tell your coach that you no longer want to play and you turn in your uniform, you know, and, and this, the toughness, right. That you have to kind of build up your ability to deal with challenging situations like at work or, or I don't know, elections and know how to manage going through those did I say that you could I mean it is, it is election week. It's like every conversation has to slip in somehow. <laughs> but and boy, that is an experience just in itself. Which part, the soccer one or the election? <laughs> Both. Well, I think it's, you know, I was thinking about this. And I did want to ask you about it. Not so much the election, but I don't know. And I could be wrong on this. I don't know that people, when they talk about creating experiences, they give adequate time to expectation setting. And I found it really fascinating with this election, not getting into outcomes and who won and who lost, or we don't know that yet or whatever, but expectation setting and reaction. So for, for those who might be supporters of the vice president who was running, the expectation was this blue wave and it didn't happen that way in the results. And so they're feeling down and I'm like, but you, it looks like you won but you're feeling depressed. Yeah. Cause it didn't meet our expectations. And then you have other people who might feel like, well, we expected to win. And now of course they are not happy because they may not have won. And so their expectations weren't met. And then other people trying to set expectations. So, I mean, it's a long lead in to talk about what is the importance of setting expectations in, in creating experiences? Cause it seems to be like a fundamental thing of whether you meet expectations is what, where they start in the first place. It is a huge part of a CX practice. So I would say it like an example, when we're developing new products or new services or features, uh, we bring the customer to the table in the design phase, right. not mm -hmm. after we launched it and hope they want it. And we understand the expectations up front. Design, it's agile, and then... Um, you optimize, you fix, you do a pilot launch, you get feedback. Did we meet your expectations? Why or why not? Right. And, and then, you know, and, and it's an ongoing process. So we can know expectations. We just have to ask it at the right time from the right people. It's not that hard. Right. In the selection example, that's a little different, but for product design, that's the way you do it. Well, I thought, I think with the election one, you know, be, you know, I, I, because I teach sociology, I have to watch the news a lot, unfortunately. And so I got to kind of stay up on what's going on. So one of the things that the Biden camp, again, not, not 
giving some kind of evaluation of them as a candidate. But one of the things that they did was expectation set. It's going to be really close. We expect it to come down to the wire. We expect us to having to fight for votes in every state. I mean, blah, 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 blah. Versus the pollsters, then those results, which were, you know, people being ahead by 12 points and, you know, looks like it's in the back. And so it was very interesting to see how those expectations shifted and how people reacted based on those expectations. And it really, I think, is like a voting experience and the experience of the election goes so much to that right now, the issue of what were your expectations going in. Don't you think a better way to be in general is not have expectations? A hundred percent. Right? Like, <laughs> especially with relationships, unless, you know, unless I communicate something, like I feel really strong about something, then I guess I could have an expectation, especially if someone's very close to me, that they might, I don't even say expect, no, it, everything's a gift. It's really more of a desire, a wish, but to expect anything on anyone, no. Um, however, it comes down to communication. So like a customer perspective, a customer might be waiting for, let's say, um, you know, some service. They have an expectation of when it's going to happen. If it doesn't happen, then we as a service provider need to set expectation or address expectation and say, listen, I'm really sorry that it's not happening on time, but I haven't forgotten about you. I'm going to follow up with you in a couple of days. So that's how you use expectation to build customer trust because they do have expectations. Right. I know you're involved in higher ed and as am I. And this idea of the expectations or the experience arms race in higher education, what do students expect and how as, as professors or as institutions or people, boards who are in charge of programs, how do we then set expectations, especially you know, in the COVID era, but just in general, right? One of the things I would say to my students the first day of class is my business card says professor of sociology, not customer service representative. <laughs> that I understand where, you know, and we would talk about our students' customers. And how you identify what term you use, and this is important in terms of linguistics, what term you use influences what your expectations are. If you're a customer, you expect X. If you're a student, you might expect Y, because those terms are related to expectations of what, how you're going to experience that context. I agree. Have you read The Four Agreements? The Four Agreements? I have not read The Four Agreements. I'm typing it down right now. Tell me about The Four Agreements. So... I'll send you my article. I wrote about it. Um, it's my favorite book. And one of the four agreements is, um, well, I'll tell you the four agreements is one is don't take things personally. Love it. Don't make assumptions. Um, be impeccable with your word, mm. which is what made me just think of it. And the final one is do your best. Now, each of those have a lot of meat behind them, but that's how I live my life. Those four agreements. And like I said, I'll share my article with you because it is a very powerful book. And honestly, those four things are how I live my life and expectations is, 
level of that? I, I like the first one because um, you know one of my favorite sayings is called Q-tip, which is quit taking it personally. Oh, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's it really hard. hard. Um, but to what you were saying before, I, this is what triggered my mind was be impeccable with your word, right? Because what you said, customer service versus. I mean, the words matter and the words set the expectation or not. Absolutely. And, you know, without going like down a rabbit hole of like, you know, linguistics and the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, those words evoke certain kind of images in our minds or, you know, or expectations regarding what is going to, what, what behaviors we're going to see and how those, be, and what our relationship is to the person we're interacting with. That's like in a social science weeds a little bit, but the point is, if I'm a, if students are a customer, then what does that make me? I would ask my students that. Then what does that make me? Or is this is our school so complex as an organization that you can be multiple things at different times based on the context you're in? And so, in some situations, you may be customer when you go get food at the cafeteria, but in the classroom, your student, in your from the counseling center, your client. If you're with somebody else, you might be peer or, or mentee. And how does your identity shift moving through this, what I would call the experience ecosystem? Right. It becomes very complex, which is so exciting about this field because <laughs> it's like there's so much meat to it. There is. Um, and the key is, especially with technology that's changing the way we live, we can't get away from the human elements of it. Right. Um, so we have to be very mindful of of humanizing business. Yeah, and I, I, want, I definitely wanted to talk to you about that because, you know, this. I know people who would say humanizing business or humanistic business would be an oxymoron. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that would be their perspective. That you know, businesses by definition are profit driven and not humanitarian, humanistic, or human-cerned. And so when, you talk, when you're talking to people about humanizing business, what does it mean and how do you deal with any kind of cynical reaction around how true that might be? Yes. Um, it, to me, is about getting real, keeping it real communicating, showing up. And when people, let's start with the employees, when the employees feel valued, included, that they matter, what happens? They then can pay it forward. They then go out of their way to make customers who they interact with or why we're all in business is to make others happier more satisfied. Right. And, and yes, business is about profit and there's process to keep, to drive consistency. But if you take away leading with a heart, then, then employees don't stay loyal. They, they, they're not happy and it transfers. It's contagious. So and I've seen it, I've experimented with it, and I've measured employee satisfaction and then compare it to customer satisfaction in particular areas. They go hand in hand. 
I was listening to a radio show recently um, on the few occasions now that I drive in a car. What kind of dog is that? A schnoodle. Schnoodle? What's a schnoodle? It's a schnauzer and a poodle. Oh. And I, yeah, shh, you're not that, supposed to be on the show. <laughs> that's okay. Look, I got two dogs. I got three kids who are almost feral at this point in the pandemic. So, <laughs> so you know, they're barely hanging in there with any kind of social you know, any socialization was, Oh, there it is. Look at that. It's so fluffy. Yeah. Yes. So she'll join our show. <laughs> I love that idea. I was listening to this radio program and there was a discussion about the, you know, in, in Florida, they passed a law that would allow a $15 minimum wage. I think after like seven or eight years or something, the exact amount of time, but a $15 minimum wage. And someone called in to say, well, that's just going to, you know, drive businesses out of business because they have to, or it's going to lead to inflation. And there's all kinds of studies that show it's not true. But the person's response was, and this gets to your point, he, he told the story of a company in Detroit that started, pay, it was a hamburger place, started paying their employees more. The employees stayed longer. The company lost less money in retraining and hiring new people. And the customers were, were felt more appreciated. That translated into how they treated their customers and how they treated the business. And the person actually made more money because quality went up and the service and experience went up and was actually able to open up more locations because of that increase in wage. It doesn't happen automatically or by itself. Right. It doesn't happen overnight. So that's where people um, bring in experts or professionals uh, like, like myself and others to make it very intentional, methodical, because happy employee, happy customer, but it does require the science of it, of measurement as well. So, um, that's why I say it can't be, it has to be very, um, it has to be methodical. I love the measurement. I'm teaching a class, a new class I developed called data context and information. What that means is without, if you have, you don't know what data means unless you add context. So data plus context equals information. One of the examples I use, I'd be interested in your response, is attrition in an organization. That's a data point. People are leaving. What's it mean? We don't know unless we kind of find out why they're leaving. Are they leaving because we did such a great job training them that they're able to advance into other opportunities? Are they leaving because the place is so horrible they can't wait to get out? Conversely, if they're not leaving, is it because it's so great they don't want to leave or because there's no other opportunities and they're staying out of convenience? And so like this, the measurement piece becomes about data and context. And I'm curious how you go about putting those things together when you're working with companies to help give them actionable information beyond just, you know, a quantitative touch point. So it's about mapping out a customer journey and there's basic ways to do it and some sophisticated ways to do it. Um, but basically you look at the different points of a customer, how they learn, buy, right. get, use, pay. And then you dive into those different touch points and there's a lot behind that. And you measure at those different touch points and then as well as holistically. And so there's certain questions like people, most people know about net promoter score, NPS, likelihood to recommend, but that doesn't tell you why they will or won't. So there's more metrics than just that. 
But for companies who aren't really doing any CX practice, that's a good start. Um, so, so there's a lot you can measure to get to the why and to get to the what you need to fix. Because if there's one point in the customer journey that breaks, if I can learn and buy from you really easily, but then once I'm a customer, it is so hard to log into my account. It is so hard to get help from customer service. I'm not going to stay. And worse, right. I'm going to tell others. Yeah, absolutely. And I, in terms of, the, you know, even there, when you're working with a client or even in your own job, your day job, how do you set expectations about how long this is going to take, right? Because you talked about, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen by itself. But yet these, a lot of co companies, and th this is where I think it goes to the culture of it. Like you, the belief, why are you doing this? Are you making these changes because you want to increase NPS or because you want to make more money? Are you doing it because you realize or recognize that businesses need to be human <laughs> and how that philosophical reason, right? Profit or people influences how you then work with them to create expectations of how long so they don't bail before it's time. You know what I mean? Yeah, it depends on the project. If it's a matter of changing a culture, well, that there's a lot of steps to do. Right. And they're not hard, but there's there's a sequence of steps to build that customer-centric culture and then measure that it's actually working. If it's a matter of um, you know, creating personas and understanding who are we really targeting. Well, that's a that's an initiative and it has a beginning and an end. So there's lots of pieces to a CX practice. Um, and they take different they they take different time and, and level of effort. And how is there a way of do you ever get a sense, and you know, obviously you don't have to talk about different clients, but where you're going in and saying, Yeah, I understand that you think you need to do this, but you really don't understand why you should be doing this. Is it like that check going back to that checkbox, right? Yeah, I just want to. People are talking about we should be doing more, be more customer centric. So yeah, let's do that. And you're like, yeah, but it, you know, it's not just about, you know, what happens in the call center. It's about what the organization is all about. I yes, I used to feel that way. Now, no, companies, it, it's it's really ingrained. Just like diversity and inclusion is really becoming yeah. part of our world, customer experience as a brand differentiator is is not uh, it's not a fad. It's not just like a moment. Like people are really getting it, but it took a while to get here. Now, it's not about convincing people. It's about doing the work. Okay, well, that's good. It's like you know, the trailblazing thing again, right? I mean, yeah the conversation's becoming easier because people realize that they, that they need to do it. And it's, it, it is interesting to think about to what extent we should be doing more of this in higher education, right. To give the people the skills. And of course you can go study design thinking in schools and apply empathy and, you know, defining and prototyping or ideating and prototyping, evaluating. But at the same time, CX is not a thing. As a program, you find in many places. I mean, maybe at the, maybe an MBA course, maybe an executive education program, but not the undergraduate level. Not that I'm familiar with. 
Yeah, you're right. It's not at the undergrad. Um, there are schools, and I did one. At, I got CX certified. So more schools are getting um, offering a certification program that I highly recommend. But at the undergrad, you're right. And I, I love that I have two college kids who are so in tuned to CX. Like they'll call me all the time and, be, and tell me about the <laughs> restaurant experience or you know some other experience, and they're so in tune to it because because of me. Um, I think they're ahead of the game because of it. Right. Sure. I mean, you've, in some way you've ruined them. I've done the same with my kids where they walk around, like looking, seeing stuff. They're like, oh, that wasn't a good experience. You didn't do the thing. You're like, yeah, can you just enjoy ourselves? No. Right, right, right. <laughs> got to analyze it all. Got to take it all in. Got to break it down. You clearly <laughs> act in your persona development because you're not meeting the unique needs of this market segment. Here's my card. <laughs> It's funny, but it's true. Um, I I think that this is going to become part of the undergrad. I believe that you could debate that. I mean, I have a marketing degree. I think that this is the new marketing. We actually have at my school a professional sales to you know, undergraduate degree. Which when the, when when it was and it was inter, it's interdisciplinary, interdepartmental. When it was first being offered, a lot of people were scoffing at it. Because they're like, well, it's just vocational. And I'm like, yeah, number one, <laughs> that's the point in some ways. Um, but number two, I'm like, sales ain't easy. Anybody who thinks sales doesn't involve psychology and sociology and observation and design and, you know, they don't know what sales is. And so I, I was fascinated by this degree. I thought it was kind of forward thinking. It doesn't have like a CX component per se, like a course, but talking to kids who are taking that major, they are, they're in it, right? And they're looking at it analytically, intentionally, purposefully. It's not just about taking people's money, but it's about delivering an experience in a way that builds relationships. And I think it's really cool, especially I'll be working at a business school that they're getting that now. My daughter is, um, yeah, she's, she is a um, marketing major, but a sales and entrepreneurship minor, oh, cool. which is, which is sounds like a lot, um, but but yeah. So it's it is bringing it all together. Like it 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 is all interrelated. It is, and that's like the, the, the that experience ecosystem as a sociologist. I like to think in systems of things being interconnected, and that when people you see how interconnected things are. I refer to it as when people are watching Hoarders, the TV show Hoarders. You ever seen it? Um, I watch Hoarders because it makes me feel better about my house by comparison. And but is it is that the theme about that really not being able to let go? Well, I think it's the you know, I think the CX professional or the experienced designer is the psychologist who goes in there and sees order in the chaos, can see a direction to actually taking steps to fixing it, right? No matter how bad it is, okay, this is what we have to do, but you need to be committed to it person or the CX professional organization, you need to be committed to it. You know, it might, if it's a big mess, it's going to take a little bit longer. If it's a little mess, you know, it's going to be a little bit different, but if you're not committed, you're not going to, you know, fix the problem versus the other people, the relatives who walk in and just freak out. They just like kind of go, Oh my God. You know, they react angrily and doesn't get anywhere. Now I often think about the, 
the experienced designer as that person walking into the house going, oh, so this is the kitchen. Um, that's very nice. Okay. So tell me about this pile of garbage, you know, and then breaking it and then doing the analytical work to understand what the path forward is. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of psychology behind that. Psychology, sociology, all the, all the ologies. <laughs> all of the ologies. And if the house is really messy, biology <laughs> and immunology. I'm like, you're really walking in there without a mask, huh? All right. Good luck. Right. I don't yeah, know. I want to yeah. see what's growing in your lungs. And then they pull out the hazmat suit. It's like, oh, this is going to be a good episode. They got the hazmat suits out. Here we go. Um, yeah. All the ologies. One of the things you mentioned before was this issue of diversity and advancement. I know you're involved in that because as a nascent field, I mean, I guess CX, humanism, humanistic business can get a bad rap as being too fuzzy, too soft. And then at the same time, does it become dismissed? And I know what, it, you know, what is it like as a, as a woman early in this field? dealing with this expectation that, oh, you're just trying to make people feel better and gender stereotyping around being a woman working in business. You know, you know what I mean? Like it almost feels like a double whammy that you're in like a marginalized field at the very beginning as a woman who there weren't many women in those conversations. Yeah, um, for sure. I have not always had a seat at the table, had to sh- really fight to show the why, my value, um, and still working on it um, in in corporate settings. However, um, when you can't, that's why data, numbers, I've come to, I'm more of a words person. I'm a communicator and words person, love writing and storytelling. And I learned quickly that I better get into the numerics because that's what people really pay attention to and that's what earned me uh that's er- what earned me um more visibility and and more trust in what i'm saying to be able to prove not just think um so yeah i think it comes with numbers showing proving and showing up too the more that people see you're passionate and you and you're there and you're especially a team player, um, all of that gets you uh, gets you gets you heard. Kind of reminds me of the go goes again. Um, you know, <laughs> love loves writing. I mean, I'm the same way. I'm a words person, uh, but I had to become familiar and and capable of having those other conversations. And so go, go. So you can, you can keep doing your thing and that's fine. You're going to play these clubs. If you want to talk to a broader audience, you've got to be able to translate it this way. And so again, it's this matter of not so much while retaining the essence and the purity of why you're doing it in the first place. I think one of the interesting stories in that, in that, in that documentary was when they said, once the money got involved, then everything got ruined. Right retaining the joy of the thing. And so doing CX, yeah, talking about the numbers, but also recognizing it's about people and their story. It is. And yeah. And if you believe in something, then all the hours you put into it, um, it's not about the money. It's the money comes from doing what you believe in 
and it's authentic and then people really believe it and trust, that's when they want to know more from you. And, uh, and so when you talked before about sales, I think sales is dead. I think it's about relationships, trust, and authenticity. That is, that's, that's how you win. Yeah. It's, if you ever saw the movie, Glengarry, Glenn Ross, the David Mamet film, it's like, you know, that thing, you know, or even death of a salesman, that thing <clears throat> versus, yeah. you know, salespeople as, like you said, tr- you know, relationship builders and trust builders. And I, I had the opportunity to do an engagement with a client, with the sales team. And one of the guys I was talking to, who's been in sales for a long time, he's like, look, you know, um, if I, if, if, if I'm not, if, my company doesn't have the right solution for this person. I'm going to try to get them in touch with the, someone who does. Mm-hmm. Because now I've built a good relationship with that person. So while he might not or she might not buy this product, they're going to remember me and likely refer me to somebody they come across who might be able to work with me down the line. Okay. And, I, and I thought, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, what are we trying to do here on earth? <laughs> We're trying to work together and live next to each other and help each other out when we can. And like, that was. You know, that's, that was a pretty cool story, which kind of goes against this. How do I put your, you know, how do I get you in this car today? Kind of model of, of sales. It's yeah, relationships and, and people um, feeling like you have their back right. as a customer and as an employee and as a leader. And do you, so do you think that as you've kind of talked about, that's a harder thing to convince companies about now as like the old model of just, you know, shareholder model kind of sliding away and moving more towards that stakeholder model? I think it's a balance um, because business is about profit, but there's more sensitivity and appreciation that how that comes and the old ways don't work. So... Is it that the old, way, the old ways don't work today or is it the old ways never really worked well? And we, that was just the only ways that we have. And I don't know the answer to that. I'm just kind of curious. Is it like there's something about today and expectations, going back to expectations, that those old ways don't work for this world? Or is it that the old ways weren't that great to begin with, but that's just what people thought you had to do? I think our needs are changing I think our expectations are changing and I really think our patience is changing. Interesting. And and that's what causes also this, this shift of what we're willing to tolerate, what we get frustrated by, what we're willing to forgive and not forgive. Um, I think that's changing. I love that. What we were willing to forgive and not forgive. You know, it's so important. And we, I, I wanted to talk more about the diversity piece because one of the challenges with diversity, equity, and inclusion can be, pe- you know, people seeing each other as really different, right? I've, I've done work in intercultural communication. It's what I'm kind of trained in. And one of, the big, one of the big cautionary points to me about diversity programs is when they're, they're predicated on difference. This group is different than this group. That can kind of create appreciation of difference, but it can also establish people as seeing each other as different. And when you do that, the tolerance can go down. The willingness to listen can go down. The ability to connect and trust can go down. And so for me, at least, I'm kind of curious because I know in the CXPA you do work in the area of diversity. 
how do you, do we kind of appreciate diversity, create inclusion, create equity while at the still time building shared identity? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It's like, how do we kind of come together as a, as a group while still maintaining our individual senses of self? Yeah. Um, That's an easy I question. Think... So super <laughs> simple question. I know you should have warmed up with that one since it was so simple. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, it, but I like to keep things simple. It's really about bringing people who have different backgrounds in a room and accepting each other's different views versus me trying to change you to my belief and vice versa. That it is simple, but, but even as you could see with, just even an election, it's like people can't talk or respect like that. You know what? I like so-and-so you like so-and-so I don't need you. Like, I don't need you to, I don't need to sell you why mine is better. Right. Same thing in a business. It's like, here's my background. Here's my experience. Here's what I believe would be beneficial to whatever we're working on. You do the same. But we don't have to fight each other's views. One of the exercises I did with my students this semester was I had them find a, like, a, like a social statistic and analyze it from their identities, from their perspective, then analyze that same social statistic, whatever it was. They could, they could choose it. And then analyze it from another perspective. And to see how you can have the same statistic, the same data, approach it from different perspectives and come out with radically different points of view on it. It makes me think of something like, you know, how much time does a doctor spend with a patient? An administrator could look at that and say, wow, it's like, you know, two minutes or five minutes. That's great. That's efficient. The doctor could look at it another way. The patient could look at it another way. You wouldn't know that unless you had them all in the room. (laughs) Going back to your point about diversity, having those different perspectives as part of that conversation becomes a crucial part of sussing out how different, you know, stakeholders are viewing this thing in different ways. Yeah, I mean, think about, um, yeah, there's so many examples. Yes. <laughs> well, let's have another one. You, you know, that's a teaser. You said there's so many examples. Like, what would you think of as like another example you've, you've seen in your work around that? Um, I think that I lost my thought. I had it. I had a point. Um, that happens to me you? almost regularly. Teaching online for ninety minutes will do that too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, yes, the end of a day um, will do that to you too. End but of a day. It's the end of a week. How are we end all? Of a week. How are yes. any of us right now able to maintain any coherent thought? Yeah, it, it, actually, it's a really good point because I had a good point, but I am. Yeah, I, I, I've experienced a lot in this day and this week, like everybody else. So I think that's, yeah, there, there's no time right now with, with the pandemic and maybe the elections, there's no beginning, there's no end. The journey is <laughs> infinite. Where the journey map, if we were going to make a journey map of this week, where would it start <laughs> and where would it end? And what would the emotional points be like in the touch points? That is exactly how I feel. <laughs> and when my team told me they're taking vacation, you know, have some vacation schedules coming up for the holidays. I'm like, what holiday? Oh, wait, right? 
it's it's oh my god new year's is not far like what <laughs> what now, the joke is it's still march it's like march it, like you know it, a millionth it is <laughs> it's not possible that, that we're at the end of the year so no wonder i can't remember my point from a moment ago <laughs> i can't remember much from it from you know a year ago let both time is both feeling compressed and rapid at the same at the same time and I do think that that does speak to the perspective that we take with any moment being based on not some inherent meaning, but the perspectives that we have around it. And that the diversity piece, getting back to the diversity point, diversity is not just a good idea, you know, morally, philosophically, ethically. It's a good idea practically because having those different perspectives informs what, what that stuff can mean and can spur innovation and growth and development in your organization. Exactly. Yep. Happy employee, happy customer. So what, what do you do? And I wanted to ask about the CXPA real quick. You're, you're in charge of diversity advance, or you're involved in diversity investment in the CXPA. What does that exactly involve? In a CXPA? Um, yeah. So there's a committee that is, um, really figuring a lot out together, kind of what are the needs, what are the resources that people need. So we're bringing smart people together in a room and figuring it out. There's a lot of, I'm a a member, there's a lot of smart people in that organization. And so I know they're actually choosing a new board right now. I got the email. So for those who are CX professionals who don't know about the CXPA, you can definitely get in touch with Stacy and inquire about that. We'll have all your information in the show notes. Any, anything else? We covered a lot. We did cover Election. a lot. Your, your, your <laughs> dog, the kind of dog you have. The go-go's. <laughs> the go-go's, I'd say most importantly, um, elevate your skills in customer experience and humanizing business and leading with a heart. And if you don't know about it, get educated read articles that like on my blog and listen to podcasts like this and, and many more on my website um, and get smart because this is how you differentiate your brand. We're not ba- buying based on price alone. So learn and apply and it's about doing, not talking. Well, with that, we will stop talking. Thank you so much, Stacy, for taking some time during this crazy week. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, come on. This it's week. historical. It's it is historical, as is this podcast. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. We want to thank Stacy Sherman of Doing Six Right and the Schindler Elevator Company for talking customer experience and the essential elements of a customer experience effort as well as, very importantly, talking about the Go-Go's. You should definitely check out the Go-Go's documentary. It's a really great watch. As well as all of Stacy's work. You can find her at Doing CX Right, as well as on LinkedIn. And we have links provided in the show notes to help you find those areas. So you can communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We love hearing from folks, from you, your feedback, and what you'd like to hear on more and in future episodes. And if you want, you can also subscribe and join us on the EXD community over at LinkedIn, as well as at experiencexdesign.com, where we share articles, ideas, and different innovations and things that are 
popping into our head and that we're seeing happening out in the world. And we love working on it with you guys. So in that case, we will see everybody next week. Thank you, everybody. Bye.